A big thank you to everyone tuning in and a warm welcome to the podcast on starting and scaling AI ventures where I would host AI leaders from across the globe in an attempt to bridge the large gap of what it means to be AI powered and how you can help your organization get there. The fourth edition of this podcast features Dr. Kirk Bourne. Dr. Bourne is an astrophysicist and data scientist who is currently serving as the principal data scientist and executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. Being one of the greatest AI influencers globally, he was a professor of astrophysics and computational science in the George Mason University School of Physics, Astronomy and Computational Sciences. He holds a PhD in astronomy from Caltech and has spent nearly 20 years supporting NASA projects including NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, NASA's Astronomy Data Center and NASA's Space Science Data Operations Office. He also works as an advisor and a consultant for projects across data science machine learning data mining analytics and big data dr bone has also been featured in many lists as the number one data science influencer worldwide thank you so much dr bone for being a part of this conversation yes yeah, great to be with you Uh, could you tell us a little about some interesting areas of work that you're undertaking as the principal data scientist and executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton, and what typical work day for you looks like? Well, for me, most of my time is uh, what they would call thought leadership. So that sounds like a scary thing, but uh, you know, doing a lot of writing, public speaking, and I do spend time uh, mentoring uh, some of the data science people and. Uh, occasionally I'm brought in to consult on a different project with the, with the data scientist. So at Booz Allen Hamilton, we have over 2,000 data scientists working on many different projects, uh, mostly in the U.S. Uh, federal government area. And so the, uh, the, the projects cover everything, you know, from defense and security and transportation and energy and healthcare and just about anything you can think of. And yeah. so there's always interesting problems that people are trying to solve with data. And so I I'm eager to have conversations with those people and also to write about uh, the, you know the topics of data science and machine learning and AI and those types of things. So I, so my typical day is really doing a lot of that sort of a, a public uh, face of of data science at my company. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I think been been a part of a lot of your conversations I can tell that thing you do something of that sort extremely well for all of us. and uh, just wanted to understand from you what it means to really have a data driven and a data literate culture because this is something that's very confusing for a lot of people out there is it having a data science team working on cool stuff or is something else entirely well a data science team uh doesn't mean the whole culture is data literate uh so it's it goes beyond just the team uh but a data literate culture does encourage the existence of data science teams since otherwise uh people wouldn't recognize the value of what data can bring but generally data literacy is is kind of a overarching uh, understanding of what data is and the power that it has to bring discovery and insights and change and uh, even new products and create new value for the business so data literacy is understanding what data is recognizing it when you see it understanding uh patterns in data and recognizing patterns and it doesn't require a lot of you know complex math or anything like that i'm i'm talking about just uh, interesting patterns in data if people see trends in data or anomalies in data 
or emergent behaviors in data, whatever. It's uh, every, every person in the organization is probably working with some kind of digital information. In today's world, just about every business has some kind of digital connection. Uh, people are working with digital information all the time. And so the, uh, the individuals who across the whole company are using this stuff, they should be empowered uh, to say something when they see something in the data. So sometimes some very important uh, insights from data that help help companies uh, make some change or have some new marketing campaign or develop some new product or even just to better engage with their own clients and customers. Uh, those insights came from uh, sometimes a person who wasn't on the data science. So the data science team is definitely involved with, with the development and deployment of, of the algorithms and the and you know and, and this infrastructure around data science, but the individual should be able to recognize the, those kind of patterns in data for the benefit of the whole organization. Yeah, um, I, I love the fact that you say that someone can say something when they see something, which uh, of course brings me uh, to the next question that you're an expert of as, as a world leader in data science. In a lot of your articles, you mentioned a five-point strategy to data literacy which was broken down into data awareness, relevance, literacy, science, and imperative. Uh, could you walk us through these aspects? Yes. So, uh, so the five points, as you said, uh, data awareness, data relevance, data literacy, data science, and data imperative. So I, I came to this when I was uh, thinking about sort of the, the, sort of the bigger audience out there, uh, which aren't the technology folks. And I did, gave some presentations to a, a public audience uh, last year, just people, I said, come and learn about what data is. And most of these people really had no clue what data was. They thought it was, if they heard anything about it, it was usually something negative. You know, how you know, governments and companies are using our data to steal our privacy and do terrible things. But yeah, so if there are ethical practices around data that we have to pay attention to, but for the most part, data, is a, is a uh, an insights engine for improving lives, improving healthcare, improving our business, improving our products, everything. So data literacy starts with that data awareness. What is it? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's images, it's documents, it's it's web traffic, it's 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 uh, you, the words you use on a social network. Data is everywhere. So getting people aware of its existence throughout our world uh, says it's really everything that you touch has some kind of digital component now. And data relevance is the, the, the second part of the, uh, the strategy. Data relevance is once people sort of recognize what it is and become aware of it, then they say, why, why is it relevant to me? What does it mean to me? And I always tell people, well, if you're using any kind of a, a smartphone or a computer of any kind, you're generating data and companies are making money off of that and generating value off of that. And I say, well, why, why can't you do that? You can do that too. And so it is relevant to you because they're using that data to improve products and services and you can get involved in that revolution yourself. So it is relevant to everyone. And so then the third stage is data literacy itself, which is show me how to use data. And having people do little ex experiments with, uh, with simple data sets is what I do. Uh, whether it's just playing with toys and sorting those toys by color and shape and size, and then we talk about what that means. Uh, those shape and size and color are different features of the toys. And then you can sort them in different ways. You can uh, cluster them in different ways. And so getting people to think about these concepts, which are very natural and normal for humans, uh, they can see that uh, it's, it's not so scary after all. 
And then data science is uh, someone that says, well, wh what's that? I mean, where's the science in this? And the science is really the, is where the ethical uh, question comes in. As a scientist, we have to be rigorous in how we interpret our data, the hypotheses that we derive from our data and infer. Um, and then uh, usually in a scientific process, if you, when you infer hypothesis, uh, you, it basically means you're uh, discovering a model of how something works. Maybe it's just a model how a disease works or a model how even a, a customer behaves on a website. And you need to be ethical in terms of understanding that. So you do experimentation uh, to validate your hypothesis, to, to make sure there's no uh, biases in it, uh, to validate that it works uh, you know, in general uh, across you know, different data sets, not just the one you tested it on. And so the scientific process is all important uh, to validate and verify that we're doing the right thing. Yeah. And then at the end of the day is uh, the, the fifth step in the strategy for data literacy is data imperative. So after we become aware of it and after we become recognize its relevance, we learn some data literacy, that is how to read data and learn the importance of the science of it, then, this, then you have to do something. So data imperative is, is the, the last step, which is we don't just learn these things about data, we actually create and do something with it. And so that's really where we bring the value and actually move forward. It's, it's, it's almost like learning language as a child. You don't learn language just to learn it and then you never use the language the rest of your life. Of course you use language your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> speaking with people and writing and reading and so forth. And so uh, the data that you, literacy that you, skills you, that you gain uh, then should carry you through your normal daily life and your work life uh, forever because uh, the world is digital. And I think uh, that's, that's an incredible summary you put through because uh, a lot of times, uh, and I'm just double clicking on the data science aspect of the five point strategy, because a lot of times people are usually lost uh, in, in a lot of these steps. And most commonly I've faced uh, people finding themselves lost in the science of uh, these five point strategies. And in one of your articles from earlier, you did mention a bias busting strategy which was titled Collect, Curate, Differentiate, and Innovate. So I wanted to understand from you, uh, for data scientists, particularly working in niche domains of AI and data science, how would you recommend they mitigate some of the natural biases in their data? Well, natural biases come about when we don't uh, recognize uh, the full structure in the data. So there's a statistical uh, word for bias. I mean, bi the word bias in statistics basically means there's more structure in the data than your model fits. Okay, so it's called underfitting. And so the way you bust bias is you, you spend more time uh, collecting data that gives you uh, multiple perspectives on any problem or that you're trying to solve, whether it's a human problem or a machine problem or a process problem in a company. Uh, the more data you collect uh, gives you multiple perspectives on the thing you're trying to deal with. Okay, so you're trying to, uh, determine whether, for example, to hire a particular person for a job. Uh, we do this all the time, right? We collect as much information as we can. Uh, education background of the person, what, what other job experience they have, and things like that. And so we should be doing the same thing with our data, uh, data science projects, is that we should be getting these diverse perspectives. So that first pet step is just collecting that data. The next step, I call it the curation step, so curation basically means ba making that data available to other people. And the way you make it available 
is to enrich it with labels and annotations and indices, uh, not just collect it and put it in some storage device, but make it accessible so people can now search through it and, and actually find uh, you know, these other perspectives when they're looking at, at, at a process or a, or, or a human agent or a business pro a product of some kind, whatever. And so the collection phase is first, but then, the, but then they actually making it usable and searchable is the curation phase. And then from that point, then you start exploring the data to actually find out what is it, is it that really gives you uh, the insight and the value from the data that you really need uh, for, your, for your use case. And that, that's a differentiation phase. That is what differentiate you from the next person. Because uh, if in the same way in a hiring process, right, if you, if you, if you're looking at a bunch of different people, what really separates this person from that person? And what is the differentiator that really makes it, you know, this person more valuable than the other person? So when you're thinking about using data to really get good insight and good solutions and unbiased solutions to your problem, you have to find out what is it that really sets this data apart that gives me that deeper insight than uh, just some single data set or some other data set. So the differentiation step is really what I call it an exploratory value analysis phase. So I say that again, exploratory value analysis. Find out what really, where, where is the value? What's the thing that differentiates this data set from that data set or this product from that product or this process from that process? And then as always, the last step is always an action step, uh, innovate. Okay, just like I said in the, in the data literacy five strat step strategy, the last step was the data imperative, which is doing something. And likewise, in this sort of uh, data, conquering, data, cognitive bias and data, the innovate stage, where you just get busy creating things and deliver value from the data that you've collected. Uh, so not, not just collecting it and say, yeah, I got a good idea how this thing works, but let's do something with it. Let's create value from that. I personally love that all of your strategies, in fact, have an action for bias. Uh, that are tying the entire piece back together at the end and which, which uh, of course, I wanted to double click again on a particular aspect of the build, which is with the increasing advancements, of course, uh, in the space of AI and, and it may be narrow AI or broad AI, but deployments like chatbots and a lot of times that people stop thinking about their problems and they just deploy a solution because it's so easily available. That's become the norm of sorts these days. And these inefficiencies then just like come front and center and these technologies eventually become the butt of people's jokes. Uh, so how do you think a culture of trust sorts can be driven through data literacy? Well, the first thing is, of course, is for people just to trust data. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is, uh, again, because there's an awful lot of negativity around data and AI. I mean, certainly AI it gets, uh, you know, all kinds of portrayals in movies normally as a, a bad thing, right? So when you when you watch movies and things, the AI is like the robot taking over the world or destroying civilization. Yeah. And data and data often gets mentioned as a four-letter word. It basically basically means it's a bad word. Yeah. Uh, because people think of data being stolen or used by businesses to harm you or to take advantage of you. But again, like I said, if we if if we really focus on doing a more ethical analysis and, and use of our data, then we can avoid those traps. And so the, uh, there's, a, there's another line in a movie that says people were so busy doing things because they could, they never asked if they should do it. And so yeah. we need to have those 
conversations with ourselves is even though we can do this, should we be doing this? And the more you do that, the more you build that culture of trust because now people see that you're using it, uh, you're asking the right questions, you're using it in the right ways. And again, data literacy, having that across a whole organization, even though the people aren't learning data science, data literacy doesn't mean everyone's learning machine learning and AI algorithms and mathematics and, and Python and R coding and things like that. that that that's an impossible task. I mean, not everyone can do that and not everyone should do that. But what they can do is, is be a literate person in the same way everyone should have communi a good communication skills. You expect every employee to have good communication skills, good collaboration skills, uh, team you know, working with other people, you know, working uh, in, in good ways with other people. So in the same way, data literacy is, 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 is almost like a, a mechanism by which we can have other kinds of conversations around the digital uh, products and digital uh, components of our organization. And the more those conversations happen across different teams at all levels of the organization, uh, then people become less scared of it and realize that uh, there's value in the data. And at the same time, if I, if I see something uh, that's not happening right, or maybe some bias or a misuse of data, you know, I, I would have the you know, empowerment to say something about it. A lot of times people don't speak up about technologies when they see something maybe not happening correctly because they don't understand the technology. And so they're afraid to look silly by making some comment about something they don't understand. But I think we need to get past that phase and say, yeah, this might be complicated. I don't understand blockchain very well. I mean, I do know some things about blockchain, uh, but there might be, I'm not picking on blockchain, but there might be something about blockchain that I worry about. And so I should be empowered to talk to someone about it, even if I don't understand how it all works. And that's, and that, and that, that trust comes about when we respect one another's concerns and then try to address them. Most definitely, I believe, uh strongly on the fact that it, it is a very strong foundation of sorts to build anything on top of the, the way you mentioned. I think it's very true that it, it is the base sometimes of a lot of things that you're building on top of it. Um, and yes. I think one of the aspects of building trust also is when you, when you, start, I, you start building sort of uh, products and services off of data, even very small ones, people will see that, that value come, coming around and they start uh, trusting it more for the bigger projects. I always tell people, start small, think big. <laughs> so yeah. start small, people will see some, uh, some small product. I mean, just like a recommender engine on an e-commerce website, right? So a recommender engine we're all familiar with, uh, whether we're shopping online or, or, we're, or we're using some kind of government service, is frequently like some kind of recommendation you know, other services or other products or other things uh, that are similar to the thing you're searching for that other, you know, other people found useful. So, so people are familiar with that. And if, if, you, if you point out that that's an algorithm that's using data and explain how it's an algorithm that uses data to find these co-occurring associations between uh, different things that people are viewing online, and, and, and then people say, oh, well, yeah, we could do that with our company. We can put up some kind of recommender and Whatever your service is, you can always recommend people other services or products that your company offers. And that uh, people will say, oh yeah, I see the value in that. Let's, uh, you know, we can start thinking about bigger things we can do. So, so starting small, showing people it's okay, that it's safe, that it generates value, 
and add value is, is good for everyone in the organization, right? I mean, the more the more the more products we sell for a business, or the more services we deliver for a services organization, uh, the better for all of us. Yep. And uh, now that you mentioned, in fact, uh, starting small, uh, wanted to switch gears and move to the starting part of the starting small and. You mentioned that uh, it's now the time to think about data science, not just as a corporate agenda, but as corporate culture of sorts in, in that you mentioned a lot of people now will be able to say something when they see something. And in this a building of a foundation stage, who do you think should lead charge in making organizations data literate? Is it the data science teams, the DS executives, or a mixture of both of these? That's sort of like everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of feel like it's like I keep coming back to other kinds of literacy because that's that's the way I want to think about it like good communication skills right it's, everyone should do that yeah. uh, e even quantitative skills forget about data literacy just quantitative skills being able to work with numbers I mean most I mean even even a person who has no education, who sells products and foods on the street, for example, they have to understand quantitative things, right? How much they're selling and how much are they selling it for? <laughs> so, so it's a natural human uh, aptitude, no, no matter you know, what your level of education is. And so data literacy is like that. And that is everyone should have some understanding of it so they can carry a conversation. So, so the, the corporate agenda versus corporate culture thing is a statement I made actually a few years ago because there were too many cases where the executives in the company said, okay, we need to have a chief data officer and, we have, and we're going to uh, set up a data science team. And it was, it, was, it was like it was some completely separate entity from the rest of the business. And, it, and, and my <laughs> point in that, in that statement was, no, this is it's not a separate entity. It's, a, it's the culture of the business culture of the business is that's why they call it digital transformation there's all kinds of conversation about digital transformation a business well transformation doesn't mean you transform some two or three people in some little office somewhere you're not transforming the business you might be transforming those two or three people's work so digital transformation and making data science a corporate culture really is about a culture of experimentation that is people seeing things in data, saying something about it, seeing if it brings value, testing it. I, I, I know this one company, they, they, they had this, uh, uh, this slogan they use with their employees. It's, it's kind of frightening, but I, I'm sort of impressed with it. it they say test or be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you work with the data, so they're a company that has a lot of customer data. They have a lot of interactions with customers, a very customer focused business. And they wanted to say, well, how can, we how can we make the customer experience better? How can we improve the products for the customer? How can we deliver better services to our customers? And if you don't know, test it. Collect the data. See if, you, if it was a positive or a negative outcome. But, you know, they, they say fast, fa you know, fail fast to learn fast. I'm a big believer in the fail fast mentality. and Not, not for failure for its own sake. People, someone got really mad at me for saying that because they said, you're, you're suggesting that our business fail. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm not suggesting strategic failure. I'm suggesting tactical failure. Just like in a war, sometimes you have to lose the hill in order to win the battle, or you have to lose the battle to win the war. I mean, it, it, yeah. same way in business, sometimes you have to lose, you have to test something, put your toe in the water, take the risk in order to uh, make positive advancements. And sometimes that risk fails, but if, 
if you make the small failures, you can have achieved the bigger victories. Yeah, and I, I personally feel that's one of the best opinions of sorts I've heard on uh, that debate because test to be fired is something I'm definitely going to put up on my wall soon. But um, of course, wanted to um, since since uh, you've been in the space for incredibly long and seen the start and the boom and maybe now the flattening out of the curve. And maybe a lot of people don't know this about you, but I, I picked it up from one of your blogs that you used to skip lunches in high school and now you're one of the most influential leaders of the time in AI. And you've seen decades of the field, as, as I mentioned, grow into what it is today, the flattening, maybe not the flattening, but the short-term flattening of the curve from what it was. And uh, wanted to understand from you what should be the role of ethics in building out AI initiatives today because the volume of data that we're collecting has exponentially increased. And is that a change from the past or was it always like this? No, we're definitely changing. I think the, um, just to go back to the skipping lunch at school. <laughs> I mean, people who haven't read that article might wonder what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, it was many, many years ago, and I'm that yeah, yeah, it's a very long time ago. Yeah. And we had uh, my my high school uh, got a computer connection to the local university computer, and at that time that was very unusual. I am that old, <laughs> before personal computers, and so we were. It was uh, it was like a sandbox, so to speak. That is, they set up this little terminal in this uh, little office, uh, so some friends and I would skip our lunch and just go and. Uh, learn how to program the computer and we were writing little simple programs you know even, you know just doing math tables and simple little equations just to prove that we could write code and do something and so it was like a sandbox and i think that's how sort of ai has grown grown up and that is and machine learning and data science but ai particularly that it, you know for many many years it was sort of a sandbox that is people researchers were, were experimenting with it they were playing with it seeing what how to implement it what kind of rules or algorithms or, or code it would need, uh, you know, just trying different implementations and, and so forth. And, and it goes, and again, it was sort of a, a sandbox type of uh, playground, if you want to think of it that way for research scientists. But now we're past that phase where, yeah, we're still doing that. There's still a lot of research and development. I'm not saying there isn't, but we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, real huge deployments and implementations across all kinds of organizations everywhere, even, you know, major government agencies and major corporations. And those things impact people and lives. And so we have to be far more ethical in those implementations than maybe we would be in doing a research, a control research experiment in a laboratory. And so I think the AI uh, growing up phase, so to speak, into how ethics has to be built into our initiatives today as a really a, a positive indicator that we've, we've reached the point where we're, we really are deploying and, and implementing these things all over the place. I think uh, very true that you mentioned that it's, it's definitely changed uh, a great deal in terms of the, the trust of sorts that people put in these systems and maybe the kind of data that we now collect about people that we probably didn't ages ago as well. And um, of course, wanted to, um, just to close off, wanted to understand from you uh, in, in some sort of a summary, because I think we've talked about this in bits and pieces before, because in, in the pandemic now in the past couple of months, in a wave of layoffs that recently gripped, I think, one of the best AI teams in the world, and even in a lot of my friends at Uber and Airbnb, 
Uh, do you see a problem in how expectations from the data function are probably misplaced or because I, I wouldn't let go of a data function of sorts? Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because I was just talking with someone about two days ago on the Airbnb situation. Yeah. And I think uh, we shouldn't take the COVID as uh, this, this coronavirus pandemic as uh, sort of a, a normal situation, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so those two organizations you mentioned, Uber and Airbnb, those are those are cases or examples of of companies that sort of thrive on uh, people, mobility, and and hospitality and travel. And that's that's sort of the basic part of humanity that's been <laughs> shut down during the pandemic, right? Travel, hospitality, entertainment, you know, mobility. And so the I, I think. Those companies thrive on data. I always tell I tell people it's really the platform, right? It's they, they don't own vehicles, they don't own hotels, they own a platform where data is shared and data data is being used to create value. And so there's a community of people, uh, the Uber drivers and the Airbnb hosts and hostesses, those people who own homes and own cars that they you know they they use and share to provide a service to other people but and they you know they make money and and the, the main corporations uber and airbnb make money off of that and it's it's really driven by the data but if people aren't traveling and they're not mobile and they're not going places those industries will suffer just and, and not just uber airbnb but other transportation agencies and, and companies and other uh, hospitality companies those everyone is suffering and so I think this uh, they will come back, you know, and they won't. You know, the hire, the layoffs will be reversed, and they'll start hiring a lot more people, you know, once all that picks up again. So it has. I think it has that really nothing to do with the data function, except for the fact that the data function is their business. I mean, it is a, a data platform business, uh, but it's really also they're serving a particular capability to the world, which is, like I said, hospitality or transportation, and uh, those those are the industries that suffered the most during the pandemic. So I think uh, we shouldn't mix up sort of what's happening with the, those companies as something to do with the data function and more to do with just sort of the nature of, of how we've been locked down and not traveling much lately. Yeah, I think that's a very, very fresh perspective on this and I've heard, uh, and of course, I think it's very common correlation not being causation, but a lot of people and, and me included, I'm guilty of mixing these two up myself, but I think that's a very fresh perspective and something that uh, is, is a lot more informed, of course, than mine, definitely. And uh, I just well, want I think to... what it, yeah, I just want to say that what, it, what, what this also tells us is that there's a, a, a great opportunity for new disruptive or businesses to, to create, to be formed and be created right now. Yeah. You know, this, the, the same sort of drivers that caused uh, the other platform companies like these to come into existence, Uber and Airbnb, uh, Open Table, eBay, Etsy, you know, Instacart. There's there's a lot of things, a lot of organizations. They don't own the products that they're selling, right? They're, it's a, other people own the products, and it's being sold through a platform. And it's it's data it's data used used uh, to create value across a large population of people. It's not just a single company. It's all Uber drivers or individuals, you like you and me, right? Yeah, yeah. Airbnb or people who just have a spare bedroom, like maybe you and me. Okay. Yeah. And so, work from home, 
a lot of work from home now and, and a lot of sort of digital transformation is creating new opportunity to create maybe new businesses, new business models, uh, new ways of uh, serving uh, services. Uh, so people should stop thinking to themselves, how can I maybe create the next Uber, the next Airbnb? What, you know, what is the industry that's ripe for a disruption? I mean, banking and think of banking. I mean, most, most banking is being completely disrupted because it's all gonna move to your hand smartphone in your hand, the mobile device. That's where banking is going to be there. The bankers of the world are worried that, that, yeah. that there won't be banks anymore. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's okay because, because, you know, 100 years ago, people were worried about uh, the people were worried about electricity uh, displacing the way that they, they would, had uh, light in their homes or light in people's homes was provided by gaslight. And they were afraid of this electricity thing and they, they didn't know what it was and it was very disruptive and even companies had a CEO, chief electricity officer, <laughs> because they were afraid of this new thing. Well, you know, we don't even think about that now, right? A hundred years later, we, we laugh about it because it seems so silly. And I think a hundred years from now, maybe yeah. people will sort of laugh at this. Hey, look at those people back then. They used to actually go to a bank, you know? Yeah. So there's all kinds of things that uh, can be disrupted during this time. And I, and I encourage people to be thinking about that, be creative and create new products, create new services that are uh, platform-based, data-driven, so it doesn't require people to drive physically to a location. And uh, who knows what, uh, what big success stories like we might hear from people who are doing that right now. Most definitely. And I think that's, that's very uh, encouraging to, to both hear and to put out there. I think it's very important that people start making these moves to places where there's opportunity. And uh, of course, I, I wanted to thank you so much for this conversation and for taking out the time. I think this has been incredibly and, and an incredible perspective on a lot of these things that so many people try to find the answers to. I'm very glad that I could speak to a world leader such as yourself. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking with you today. I hope this was helpful and enjoyable for everyone who tuned in and please keep watching this space for more and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of Starting and Scaling AI Ventures. Goodbye.